you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. Time to break out the shorts and the t-shirts instead of the sweats and the et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, so uh, thanks again, Ted, for being our guest. And it, this is a uh, it always gets comments when I wear it. You know, I have certain lounge pants that people always talk about when I have like Dr. Seuss or Black Panther or something like that. This is one like, what's, who's tap dance killer? And it's like, well, I have this friend that, that does this great comic. And so and now you can say, <laughs> if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see the interview. <laughs> Exactly that. If you want to go and get some, you know, get, get your geek on, we are relentless in our yes. geekery. And so it is, it actually, you know, that's very fun. I, for a long time, I, when I ran the smart life, you know, that was the very early social media site before Facebook was big. I actually had started something up that had lots of Mensa friends and so forth. And it was just that little fun tweak of when people say, Hey, you know, what's going on? What's your website? And it's like, well, I've actually built an entire universe of fun people and good content. And you know what I mean? If you stop by, it'll get even better. And it just was nice to have that little leave behind. You know what I mean? That, Hey, come, come and join us. It's fun. That's true. (laughs) Geek cred that you're always still one step up on the tech. I remember having a Palm pilot and when my kids were born showing or somebody going, so you got any pictures of your kids? Well, let me show you. And I pulled up the Palm Pilot. They're going, really? You carry them on your phone? That's so weird. You know, fast forward 20 <laughs> years later, everybody does it. Everyone does. <laughs> if anything, you can't stop them from thrusting their phone right. in your face and going, oh, I don't need to see your trash cans and how pretty right. they are, you know. <laughs> and it, it, I, I, like email, you know, because I got mindark.com along with probably 10 other domain emails. Right. And people are like, oh, I've never heard of that one. Well, no, that's because it's mine. I don't use Gmail. I don't, you know, all that. And they're like, oh, exactly. I'm so used to everybody having that. That's true. You know, it's kind of funny. Colleen and I were just having this conversation. I I think you and I, and actually we were a little bit too, that I tend to really get value out of my technology. You know, I buy a phone and I don't like necessarily buy each next generation phone as it comes out because this phone still works with all the capabilities it had when I bought it and they're near indestructible. And I just don't want to be on that treadmill, that weird treadmill of, you know, got to have the latest and greatest because it is fun to show it off, but it also is expensive and just sometimes the transitions are enough hassle that you're kind of happy to have I had everything tweaked just right I don't want to untweak it but having said that right. there really are it's it's good to have the ongoing awareness of all right cameras have gotten better uh the new iWatch has like it monitors my heart and my blood sugar you know the the washer dryer in our basement they got better sear ratings so they're more efficient all kinds of things it's worth saying you know we don't have to Right. Keep this until it drops in exhaustion. We really can say every two, three, five years, whatever yes. the windows are. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and maybe an awareness of those windows. How fast does technology march? That it's worth saying, I, I kind of want the right. newest and I want it because it has these additional capabilities or because it saves me money. It, you know it, what I mean? There's a That's what I'm I'm having to tell myself with my rig. Uh, you know, if yeah. if I got it in January of this year. I'm not going to need to upgrade the CPU and the memory and the video next year because it's not going to be enough of an upgrade, enough of a change. 
five years from now, maybe depending on cost, it's enough changes. You know, the phone's the same way, you know, and I, I don't like to change my phone a lot, but you're probably like me every now and then you're like, you know, I I really should go in and maybe I can optimize it just a little more. Maybe I can change something to get a little more speed, a little more memory. And you play exactly. Do I have my Wi-Fi settings so that they're at the maximum security and can, and if if anything, a lot of times what drives me to upgrade is when it can't take something that I really want. Like when, when we had our, me and Colleen had our Mac laptops and, and snow leopard, the operating system working perfectly. And when it got that, it couldn't take the next operating system upgrade without some 32-bit apps not working because it went to 64-bit or whatever the qualifiers were. It's like, I don't want to be in that game now of I'm deleting things from my hard drive because I don't have enough right. room. I'm continually like closing apps so I have enough memory. Like, especially I usually get my rigs really outfitted because I don't want to be interrupted by I've run out of memory. Right, you know what right. I mean? That just seems, doesn't that seem like a 1980s yeah, problem? And exactly. I don't want to be in the 1980s. I remember upgrading and, and so I, an Amiga <laughs> to a whopping 512k just to play SimCity. <laughs> exactly. I, I'll tell you, part, I was a consultant at Ameritech for a long time, and I would say for a year, about a third of my time was doing limb upgrades. Remember, Lotus, Intel, Microsoft had a standard for how you could go beyond the the 3... 84 barrier, if I remember correctly, and you had to get the memory and then configure your machine so that it could recognize that memory. If you really did it for like Lotus spreadsheets, it was very, very handy. Well, that's, that's kind of like the last time whenever I got, I remember getting like an 80 meg hard drive and going, how will I ever use all this space? Well, then, you know, music shows up as rich media and various other things. And you quickly see that everything always accelerates, right. you know, they, they get past you. The files get so, bigger. Yeah. So I guess that that's kind of a little bit of a resolution, you know, like I really want to always be when I describe my rig, not immediately have caveats for, well, I got that old and it was great at the time. I kind of want to be close to state of the art, especially if it's capabilities for me or additional safety, as you know, cyber warfare is all around us. And I really like it when I, uh, the machine has actually nowadays, they have things, you know, on board where it's got a, uh, a corral of how it runs memory so that it really does stop things from being able to take it over, get root, et cetera, et cetera. And as those things are introduced, not only do I want to have them for myself, but I kind of want to have experience of them. Not kind of, I really want to have experience because all my friends, as you know, when you're a geek, a lot of people just have casual geek conversations with, Hey, uh, my, my, my system is running slower. Do you think it's a virus? It's like, mm, let's it, talk it's about a human virus. <laughs> <laughs> really? Exactly. What is it? Pebcac. Problem exists between uh, chair, chair and keyboard. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Right. So, but but I, I always have been like that, too. I want to have familiarity, direct familiarity with these things so that I can actually, by having both Mac and Windows, I can talk about, well, here's the way in which I'll compare and contrast between Windows 10 and Mac OS, you know, 15 or whatever else it might be. And and I don't know, it just matters to me that I'm relatively current. One of the ways in which, you know, as my body gets to be 60 and I slow down a little bit, I can still keep up with these kids nowadays <laughs> because I have state-of-the-art phone, not a flip phone. I have state-of-the-art computers. If anything, I kind of know more than most right. people, no matter yeah. their age, about a lot of these things. You know what I mean? So one of my, at least that's a conversation I can have. One of my <laughs> things I like being able to do is 
having my phone, having my computer, laptop, whatever, and say, yeah, well, you're complaining that your laptop, oh my gosh, it's three years old. It's running so slow and I got to get a new one. I'm like, oh, well, look, mine's running just as fast as yours and it's 10 years old. It's, I have so much knowledge that I can keep it running very well. <laughs> you know, it's uh, that type Exactly. Of I, I installed my own memory and I didn't zap everything. Yeah, oh, you know, that oh, kind don't of say that because <laughs> Frankie really did do that. He's still bitter about it a while back. Oh, I didn't tell oh, you that no. story. Yeah. No. Last year when he got his stimulus check, he went out and bought a gaming rig and nice computer and it could have been liquid cooled. It had lights and it was, you know, fast memory, good card, all of that. And he got a new desk, was moving things around. He's been streaming. So he set up his green screen behind him, you know, was really getting into it. Well, he was in a hurry and he left various things plugged in, was moving things around and something flopped over a live wire, hit the motherboard and fire flew out the back. And that was it. So he was not happy about that. He's like, do you think anything survived? I'm like, no. You're you're gone. You're, no, you're really. Once you see smoke, right? There, no. And, and he had a pretty <laughs> modern rig. I mean, he didn't even have a hard drive, as I even recognize it. It was really just a memory stick, but it had consistent memory. However, magic they do that nowadays. And I'm like, right. that's your hard drive. I'm like, okay, I don't know a thing about this. It's a whole new port. It's a whole new look. I'm like, I, I can't. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, you know, it, it's sometimes things that used to be miraculous become so commonplace. Like, I don't know, I used to carry around and we can run through the history of it, Cyquest cartridges and zip cartridges and various different things, Bernoulli boxes that were extensive, extended storage. So besides your hard drive that you had inherent in your machine, you could have 20 and 40 and 80 meg cartridges. And especially if I, I worked on multiple development projects, I kind of liked being able to have some separation between them and to be able to carry it to the client and et cetera, et cetera. Then they came out with, you know, thumb drives where it's like, wow, this little thing you can hide in your pocket is now spy stuff. You know, I can carry the, the exact, and you can lose them. But the fact that they're now becoming where you, you have like a complete operating system on it. And it really is like they used to make fun of, you know, with, with any um, earth laptop, you can take over an alien right. spaceship and destroy their armada. Well, you can really put in a hard, you know, a little thumb drive that, is outfitted to like take over, read data, grab, you know, spy stuff in kind of a dangerous way, but also in a cleansing way. If I go to a friend's house and I have all my tools on it for let's check the hard drive, let's check the file integrity, let's all that kind of stuff. It's very cool to have your bag of tricks be not a succession of floppies, but this little magic thumb of yours. Yeah. It's the cool thing. I, so I had a thumb drive <laughs> that had lots of hacker type stuff. So I could go to a client, plug it in and I could get to it and run things and check things not to take over and be a black hat, but it's because the same tools can be used for good. (laughs) For good or for evil. Exactly. I have a thumb drive that runs Apache. So I can literally take my thumb drive and do web development on any computer anywhere. I have another one that runs Linux, uh, Ubuntu, so I can run it right off the thumb drive any on my laptop, on my desktop, on my wife's laptop, you know, whatever. And it's all consistent. So. Exactly. In fact, it, when when they started, I have been going to tech conferences forever. And when they started to give away, not only at tech conferences, but just at regular conferences, here's a thumb drive. It has the your you know schedule and a whole bunch of useful stuff. You know what I mean? The the logo for the conference or whatever like that. And it was like, these are now enough of a commodity that they give them away by the 30,000. Yeah. 
You know what I yep. mean? That's kind of cool. And, and, you really know it's arrived and it's stable. And <laughs> Right. And the last one I just took and plugged it into the port in my head and I was good. I just pulled it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's a pill you're going to swallow and it's either the red pill or the blue pill. <laughs> right. Okay. So you said you got out the uh, spring wear and starting to wear uh, your warm weather clothes. Um, we just exactly. had Easter and we were talking about, we didn't talk about Easter last week. So uh, I saw you guys were away uh, for the weekend, but uh, so geekery wise, what are the traditions you've grown up with or that you guys do and things you do for Easter? It's, it's funny as a family, we did many more things like dyeing of eggs and coloring of them. You know what I mean? We've tried that. We, we always had POS, which I think is one of those places that has an officially government sanctioned monopoly <laughs> because I don't know that there's any other, right. but you know, and, and getting together with friends or with family, that's always very fun. You get to see everybody's taste in colors and just sometimes happy accidents come out and they're really yeah. beautiful. Sometimes they have the little speckles and stuff. Um, my, when I was growing up, we used to have a big Easter egg hunt and kind of a treasure hunt in the house where it was not only Easter eggs, but um, bags of jelly beans, you know, those little mesh yeah. bags um, of jelly beans and a chocolate eggs and a chocolate bunny hid somewhere. And my dad hid them all over the house. And then he would give out clues. And there was like one of each of the various different things for each of the kids. And so he with his amazing memory and his amazing creativity was able to put out clues. It was like, he remembered like looking around at who's got one in their basket. Oh, you haven't found your bunny yet. And he'd give some kind of interesting cryptic riddle, if you will. And, and he was smart in terms of they really weren't buried. They weren't in the bottom of the drawer behind the tools or something like that. They were all where you could see them from a certain viewpoint, but sometimes it was like, you know, we had curtains that had a, a swag uh, rope that kept them together, and he nestled it in where if you shook the curtain, boom, it would fall out. But otherwise, it was just kind of waiting to be found. And we just, I was amazed at, of course, you know, your sugar high, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you're getting all the cool fun treasure. But the fact that he did that for years and years, and and it didn't seem to be that there was the same places each year, that there was all those new creative places, you know, like I had a bunny box in a bookshelf where, because it's the color that year, there's not a bright pastel where it'll immediately stand out, but somehow just fit in. Right. And you'd be like, you, you'd look around the room and scan anyway. So I always love that. Um, we often went, went as a family for a walk. And so that's, you know, spring is springing and we'd go out to like uh, Cosman Lake was near our house in Elk Grove village where I grew up and just various different things were bursting into bloom. And it was very much family time. Have a big, uh, you know, Easter breakfast, you know, where everybody contributes, or somebody cooks eggs, that kind of stuff. And then a big Easter dinner. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of traditions. Now that it's down to just Colleen and I, we have pisanki and I should, I wish I would have thought to bring one up to have it on camera. You know, those are those beautifully colored Ukrainian oh, yeah. Easter eggs. And I, I don't know, I love colors like that and patterns like that. I just have that thing about complexity and symmetry and just it's, they're beautiful. And I always thought in my mind that they were kind of like Fabergé right. eggs where they're going to cost me $10,000. How am I going to do this? We discovered that here in Cleveland, the Ukrainian Defense League, no lie, has a little gift shop and they have all manner of members who make these Easter eggs. Nice. So for as soon as I got in town, we went over there and like get two eggs each year for a couple, you know, a couple, probably at least 12 years where we had two dozen and we had like the special Fiesta Ware egg holder so that they display beautifully. And man, there's just nothing like seeing those as you walk around your house and, and glance by and you just stop and look at them because 
They're just so beautiful. And human beings made this with that painstaking wax removal yeah, process yeah. and, you know, multiple layers, multiple iterations of it. I, I, I can't think of anything more that's beautiful nice. that I have in my house, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that, than, than that those. They're really beautiful. <laughs> level of artist, artistry. Yeah, exactly. Not just craftsmanlike, but, but artistic. And they have like where one's white on white, it's a big goose egg. And they did it all where it's just like layers of wax with slight dyes. So instead of being bright, it's actually very subtle. And one of those things you kind of hold it up to the light. And as you move it, it shifts. I don't know, man. I just, that's nice. The fact that someone has that steady of an eye and it seems to be something like they had classes at this place as well, where it was handed down from, you know, mother to daughter. It seems to be many more ladies than guys doing it. I'm not sure why that is, but they, it was very much like the steady hand and the accumulation of, um, 10 eggs in progress and pick up each one and do the next thing to it. And then beauty appears. Wow. Oh man. That's, that's, I, I know I'm just, that's beyond my skill. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that's I, that reason. One of the reasons I've never taken it on is, you know, I could do the jigsaw puzzle <laughs> of Pisanki eggs. I can't make it. And, and I probably could, but, but it's just now I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I've never had fine motor control where I, I just, uh, I haven't embraced that and gotten better at it. Whereas, for instance, my younger brother loves painting miniatures. Oh, yeah. And he used to, you know, like from um, from D&D characters or from various different periods of war, Seven Years' War, Revolutionary War, and so forth. And he'd be sitting there with, like, a paintbrush that had three little sprigs on it and getting, like, this perfect collar it's like a micron across, right. you know what I mean, on this guy. And he did the research to make sure that the costumes, the costume, the uniforms were authentic. I just, I kind of like, let's dip it in brown and see how it yeah. looks. You know what right. I mean? I don't have that yeah, necessarily. So, Well, when I was a kid, our Easters were always down at my grandmother's. Uh, and I remember when I was really young, my great grandparents were still alive. And they literally, when they were 20, came over on the boat. Uh, from Hungary uh, to settle in wow, okay. America. So they still spoke their native country language and that my great grandfather, you know, he was ancient at the time I was five. He was 75. Um, exactly. So there are two things I remember us always doing was an egg roll where my grandfather built a ramp and you would roll your egg down the ramp and wherever it stopped, you'd have to put a penny and if it rolled over anybody else's pennies on the way, you could pick those up. So over oh, time, cool. it was one of those where everybody'd keep missing pennies. So you'd have a million of them out there. So then every roll, you would get four or five pennies and then you'd put one down. But pretty soon it exactly. rebalanced the other way. And, you know, so it was always that lottery feeling of, oh, man, I could win lots of pennies, but it never worked out. Exactly. <laughs> <A little slot. laughs> it evens out over yeah, the course of yeah. who goes it in, was just what turn and stuff. Yeah. Entertainment. And then uh, the other yeah. fun game my great grandfather wanted us to play was you would take quarters uh, and nickels and 50 cent pieces dollar whatever uh he he had yeah. he had some money from his life uh, he did good with that so all us kids would get pennies and he'd have quarters but you would hold an egg the other person would take their coin try and slam it into the egg if it went all the way through they got all the egg, all the money in the eggs well Okay. It was more fun for him to watch us flinch every time somebody missed and we'd hit knuckles with pennies or you know exactly. something like that. And we realized when we were older, that really was the point of the game, was for my great-grandfather <laughs> to laugh at us as we 
cracked our knuckles, hoping to get 25 cents in pennies. That's right. I'm, I'm not sure you're willing to sacrifice right. your hand in order yeah. to get <laughs> Then uh, when my kids were born, uh, we did the Easter egg hunt. I did it around the house. Um, Good for you. I bought like 350, 400 eggs. <laughs> And wow. well, we've got, we got the <laughs> land, you know, and I would fill them yes. up with little bits of candy or some coins, you know, when they were younger, it was pennies and nickels. As I got older, I put dollar bills and stuff and I'd spread right. them all throughout the house or out the land and they go out searching and we always invited friends over. I'm like, my kids don't need 400 okay. eggs. So it was always more fun with <laughs> friends and they would always have a gaggle of kids running around the yard looking for eggs and stuff. Every That's single cool. year we would find eggs all summer into the next year. Uh, it, right. Because even if you, with, with, a, with that many, a dozen kids running around, they don't nope. scour the place nope. necessarily. In, in okay. fact, earlier or late last year in the fall, I was walking the dog in the woods and boom, there's an egg laying on the ground that must've fallen from somewhere. <laughs> and you know, right. been, I always, <laughs> and when Jason got to be a part of it, he was only nine when we started, he'd never done an Easter egg hunt and he was super excited. We'd go running out. The older kids were like, yeah, eh, who cares? And uh, I was looking through it. I'm like, so what everybody get? Oh, I got a dollar. Oh, I got some quarters. I got candy. I got this. I said, oh, well, nobody got the $20 bill yet, huh? They went, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they all went running out. Go like back three out. Three hours. They're scouring. Every- <laughs> Dude, I did not put a $20 bill in an egg. But Oh, you are the but, king of e-bill. <laughs> but they found almost all the eggs, so I didn't have to go pick them up. <laughs> There you go. And that's, that's a time honored yeah. thing. You know, I mean, if you want to sell every single thing at a carnival, you make sure that there's one big prize and people will keep going right. for that prize. Every ducky in the pond, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So, like, you know, oh, I, go ahead. No, I, I, I'll, I forgot to mention a couple of things. Our family used to have egg fights and to make sure don't let, don't go wrong here. We, we had hard boiled eggs and one holds the egg and the other one taps end to end the eggs and see which one's cracks. And and it's not, they both don't. One or the other wins. And then if yours cracked, then you got to eat that egg. And so once in a while, we'd have an egg go all the way around the table. And you learned, of course, to crack pointy end to pointy end because the semi-hollow round end ain't, ain't going to win. Right. And if if your egg made it all the way around, then instead of I'm hitting another egg. You had to crack it on your head in order to start eating your egg. And, you know, so when I, when I said we had egg fights, it's like you envision, well, you like three right, eggs at the house, kind of like that. No. And I don't know any other families that no, has that. I don't know if it's German or Lithuanian or if it's my mom and dad came up with it. It's like it, thumb wrestling. It was a way of getting the kids like that. Exactly. So Colleen and I do that. You know what I mean? We have hard boiled eggs. We will often, and you learn like how to hold the egg like in your hand so that it's, more supported right. you know an eggshell is actually a very beautiful creation where it's really strong for the little bit of of shell that it is if you will and especially it's strong end to end you know from the side you can stove it in more easily but at the end it's so anyway structurally you know uh, if you hit it right end to end that's the best way to do it sometimes colleen will miss and it's like well that's because you don't have years of training like we did on auto in the egg fight <laughs> you know i think and I'll go, I'll have to go research this now. If you boil eggs, uh, like in oil, maybe, uh, or vinegar, maybe vinegar in the boiling water, it softens the shells. So that's what you do. You boil your eggs without the vinegar and boil everybody else's in the vinegar. Yeah, with, with sacrifice yeah. or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> 
And actually, this is where, you know, we have an instant pot because it's very cool to be able to do long-term things in short-term by pressure cooking if you'd like to. Colleen discovered a recipe for instant pot egg cooking where they turn out perfectly. The eggs, are like uh, the yolks are not green. The eggs are hard, but they peel really well. You know, one of those things where it doesn't come across, uh, come off in fragments, but that it, you kind of crack it a little bit and then whole husks come off. And we, that's how we do it all the time now. We do eight, nine, 10 eggs in there, depending on how many will fit. And we, we have, there's any number of articles about how to do the perfect egg. They have a little egg timer that right. you put in the pot and it'll tell you when they're done. Or like you take them out and you eat it and put them under cold water. That's, that's part of the process of the instant pot is that after they're done, immediately you do them with ice water. And that seems to give you the right combination of the egg is fully cooked, but the shell is, just the right amount of brittle but tough uh-huh. so that it peels well. And I don't know, we, we'll never go back. Once you discover that, you're uh, like, I'm, we eat enough hard-boiled eggs that we do that. Well, I know Instant so, Pot's been on our list. <laughs> so maybe I have to get one now. Yeah, it's. I think it's one of those, we have a crock pot, and that's always what we've used for long-term cooking. And I really love that. I love tender meals and where the, f- the flavors have had a chance to really intermiss and get good. But the Instant Pot is really cool for specific things. And when they went on sale at Costco, you know what I mean? That it was 200 bucks and it came down to like 89 yeah. or something like that. It was like, wow, I Can't really need to have this. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so with Easter, okay. uh, did you guys ever go to church? Because I-, I grew up Catholic, and of course, Easter was the big thing. Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday. You know, there's a lot of church Lent, uh, and I was never allowed to give up Lent for Lent. So I'm still salty <laughs> about that one. But you know, it was always kind of a, a thing. Oh, it's Easter Sunday. You have to get dressed up in your little suit, your good clothes. You go to church. You know, they walk around, do all the stations of the cross, and then you go to grandma's right. and eat a meal and have the, all the fun stuff. It was. You know, growing up, it was like that. I haven't done that since I've been older. Did you guys do anything like that? Yeah. You know, this is very interesting. My parents are not heathens. They're actually religious. But <laughs> well, that's they, a good thing. You know, put on your T-shirt. Of... <laughs> My parents are not heathens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, because it's funny, you know, I, I am quite atheist. You know what I mean? I really, uh, I've read so much religion and mythology and folklore that it's hard to believe any of them. They all seem to be mythology enough to me. And my parents were kind of what I, when I talked about going for Sunday walks, that's kind of what we started to do as a family. My dad um, worked a lot. So most of the time Sunday was his day off. He often worked Saturdays and we discovered that instead of like going to, I think our Lutheran church, I grew up Lutheran Christus Victor in Elk Grove, we just weren't, as a family, getting enough out of it. We would, for probably the first, I don't know, until I was 10, 8, dress up, and not only for Easter, but, you know, just be very um, respectful Christians, You're supposed if you to will. do this. Those kinds of things. And then, I don't know, especially after you've done a couple years, and the homilies become similar, and if, not to be weird, if you're smart, you learn all the stories, and you don't need to hear it again. You don't need to have it amplified. You realize all the, the contradictions the entry- and all the things that well, and don't that make too, sense. You know, I wasn't looking to leave, but it wasn't giving us a lot. And, and so we started going for Sunday walks instead nice. that we just discovered. And I don't, maybe we have some Druid blood in us or at least some, you know, uh, more Germanic Gothic, uh, love of nature that we as a family got much more together, um, out of going to, out of going together, taking the dog along, exploring nature. Um, kind of you talk about how your week was. 
the things that the family was doing, it not being um, an audience in a church, if you will. And that kind of broke that pattern so that we didn't regularly go to church and we didn't, especially on the various different uh, big holidays, Easter, Christmas, etc. That just wasn't part of what we did. We spent family time together. Um, I think that, like my older brother, is has become quite religious, and so I think that their family does that. And my younger brother may be a little bit more outside of it, like I am. But it it never was a uh, it wasn't a big force in my life. And uh, boy, I, you know, I know if you're if we're looking for how we can take relentless geekery down a weird path, yeah. it's that. It's that I really, not only do I not believe, but I really see that the kind of belief where you turn your mind off to believe some of the things that are the contradictions, that it starts to, in my experience, show up in other parts of people's lives. They're a little bit more, not gullible, but willing to suspend disbelief because someone is so fervent in their belief, in their assertion of something. And I have very much a skeptic and a questioning and a science mind. And so it's always, well, so what's the supporting evidence for that? And how does it tie into everything else that I know? And so my my biggest thing was, you know, when you read all these mythologies and you find out that every mythology, Greco-Roman and Norse and Hawaiian and American Indian, they have savior myths, they have flood myths. They have creation of the world myths. And it's like, why is any particular one, any of them, more persuasive than the others? Kind of like, they're nice stories, and I really get value out of the morality and the ethics and the community that can be created from them. Awesome. In the way that that word has become overused. It'll be like, I just can't believe that the universe was like I'm happy to be right here, right now, with the ionization of the atmosphere and these sheets of color. But it doesn't even have to be spectacular like that. When when spring hits and you see things that have been sticks, dormant, brown, and the little buds start to appear, it's like, well, if that isn't nice, what yeah. is? If that isn't miraculous, what is? And I know it's not miraculous. It happens a scabillion times around the globe. They all have programming in their DNA that tells them, here's what you do when you get enough warmth and water and that kind of stuff. And yet there's still the appreciation for a magnolia tree or bush in full bloom where just this explosion of color. And and at like we 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 left, we just went to the um African Safari Wildlife Park. That was our little day day trip to go and feed animals. And there's something very cool about seeing the variety of animals and how they're all like perfectly suited for their environments and, and they eat differently and they, they mate differently, whatever else it might be. And whatever the thing is that people say that has to have a desire behind it, to me, it's like, you know, if nature took 4 billion years to try everything that might work and they figured out that that's how you fill every ecological niche, I'm big on Darwin. I'm big on, you know, appropriate environmental pressure that creates all these various different, every finch beak is because they had different nuts to crack. And the ones who survived into the next generation passed along the heredity traits. And that theory of evolution fits everything. And I thought that was interesting. It's That's a very interesting show because of its take on treating the Christian uh, mythos as a mythology and that you really can go with seraphim and cherubim and and all that. Like you did, there's, there's demons and devils and angel and all that kind of stuff. And, and that, I don't know, it's very fun that they play with it and they investigate it and that it isn't meant to be scripture. Of course it's not scripture, but then kind of 
scripture isn't scripture. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? It's, and my my younger brother, who's very much a history buff and, is, and especially a historiography guy, where he understands how history was done. When you find out that, of course, this wasn't the inerrant word of God that Jesus spake and somebody jotted it down, but that many books of the Bible were written 10 and 50 and 100 years after the the life of Christ. And so it's already been handed down and it's already been in multiple languages. And in fact, there's some books of the Bible that were taken out because they were inconveniently friendly to women. You know what I mean? The Apocrypha, it's like, wow, there's been kind of an agenda and kind of an editing and kind of a corruption from the very start. And yet you put your hand on that and you say, this is the inerrant word of God. And it, it doesn't hang together itself. So for all those reasons, you know, I don't want to die because somebody else is like bad in their reading comprehension. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that the whole country goes to war because they've decided that the book of Revelations is real and it's time to have the apocalypse. I mean, there are a whole bunch of rapture crazy, a whole bunch of there's, and I guess that's, you know, I already used the word, oh my God, crazy. And yet I don't know how to describe right. it when... There, there's something that says, I know that this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to go with it. Like you have to really suspend your disbelief and become more fanatic in your belief when someone is going to question it. Yeah. And that's such a dangerous it, and thing. It's hard to tell such the a, difference between somebody like that and somebody with a straight jacket claiming to be Napoleon. <laughs> right. And you know what? And in fact, to, to, to pull back from that, I think that the one of the big things, like I, I think one of the things that I might have mentioned, you know, when my parents started to go on our walks with us is there was just enough corruption in the church in Europe and in the United States that already they were sensitive to. Um, it's not that they don't believe in the Bible, but they suddenly seem to be. Um, there are a lot of charlatans in the field. Let's put it that way. And they use people's good faith against them. They get money, they get service, they get um, devoted followings. And when you find out that there's like your priest was with one of his parishioners, and not even a child, which is even more terrible, but like, you know, you really have, you, you say all these nice things about the sanctity of marriage and that your faith in God will get you through tough times. And yet you're fooling around with right. people. You are betraying some, some of the most important things. And especially you're betraying the faith of your flock in you as being a good example of how to live a good Christian life. And I find it really hard to get Obviously, past Obviously, you things. don't believe the power it yourself. Corrupts like that. And and yet they can stand up and start to talk about what you should be doing. Right. You know, hypocrisy is a big thing for me. And I can't stand it when someone says yes and does no, because they know it, because they know going in, they're not blind to it. There's, there's that trickster aspect right. of it and they'll never admit to it. And yet it, it hurts people so much to be like, how am I to get in my own head that this guy is living in a mansion or has had multiple wives or various different things while professing to be all about family values. And like, I would have thought that any number of scandals would have brought down any number of religious empires over the course of time. And yet he goes on a little bit of onion, artificial tears, begs forgiveness. And the flock says, yes, of course we forgive you. It's like, wow, at least stand up for yourself in terms of your standards for what good behavior is, and at least don't follow this guy anymore. Turn away from the liar and the charlatan and pursue your own good, deep, profound, I'm going to make myself into a better human faith. And I just don't see that. I see blind following. I see mistakes. Oh, well. well oh, well. So <laughs> speaking of the, the Bible and religion, uh, you said 
uh, that you were posed a question recently about what is funny. Because <laughs> that kind of ties <laughs> Very in. Very nice segue. It's, well, so exactly. I'm I so I'm going to be teaching for Baldwin Wallace in their kind of adult education, their lifelong learning group uh, about comic books. You know, we, I, as you know, it's one of my my fields that I, I know quite a bit about, and I'm happy to share it. <laughs> Part of my getting to teach that this fall is their 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 uh, honorarium, their payment to me was I got a chance to take one of their classes this spring oh, cool. and kind of sample how it's all done. And you know, in real life, it'll be in real life, but right now it's via Zoom. And so the class that intrigued me the most was a uh, film history of comedy movies. And um, so, sure, I I I laugh easy. I love comedy, etc. So the guy started off things with you know not just let's let's watch some funny clips of the Marx Brothers, but it was as framing what is funny what do you think is the funniest movie of all time who do you think are the funny performers and and kind of why you know that it's film appreciation and it's film analysis not just let's get together um and so this is interesting because a long time ago Metza had a colloquium on humor and it really looked at humor from all kinds of different facets. And one of the funny things you find out is that it's there's not only one kind of funny you know there's um insult humor funny there's wit funny there's pun funny there's pratfall funny there's physical comedy there's absurdist or you know uh, surrealist funny where you're just like well that doesn't quite fit you know and and as you look at those and one of the funny things about humor is and there's any number of quotes about this you know the more you analyze that the more you dissect that frog the more you kill it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's hard to talk about humor without being, well, let's rank the humors. Let's see which one is the best. And we didn't want to go there, but I, I laugh very easily and I laugh at all different kinds of humor. And I laugh at things that I probably shouldn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> that that there, there's an embarrassment to them or that. And so some people will make their big pronouncement of um, humor is all about power. The person who laughs is the one that gets to lord it over the other person being laughed out, laughed at. It's like, but that's not all of humor. Right. Someone said it's all about tension and release that you set up a certain expectation and then you break it with a little surprise and our reacting to that surprise almost always causes laughter that the way we relieve, relieve the discomfort is, is that, um, so, um, I, I like, what's my favorite funny movie of all time? Probably Monty Python on the Holy Grail because it is consistently, um, funny and yet smart and they know just how to take historic situations and make fun of what's funny about them. Not in a savage way, not in a, this is all crap way, but more like absurd and, and that there is physical comedy and there's wordplay. And there's, I just, I love that. It's almost like a showcase for all the different kinds of humor. And boy, the Monty Python people were, were just by it being a troop, you have all of their comic sensibilities represented. And I, I don't know. I, it's one of those movies that, Every time I rewatch it, it's not like you know what's coming. And so you just, huh, I anticipate how good certain scenes are going to be. And I start, I just love the good laugh yeah, of definitely how, how skilled they are at putting this on camera. And, and, you know? and I so, agree. I think Monty Python's hilarious. Um, and I know there are some people that like, this is stupid. I don't get, you know, don't think it's funny at all. Right. It's not for everyone. And, yeah. But on the other side, the things like airplane and police Academy, there are people that think that those movies are the epitome of humor. And I'm like, yeah, this is kind of stupid. So it's definitely, <laughs> you know, different There's types taste. of humor. Yeah. Taste. Exactly. And for me, yeah. some of my favorite humor 
is within an action movie if we're talking movies. So you mm-hmm. get the uh, um, Lethal Weapon. I, you know, if I want a good comedy, I want to relax and laugh. I'll put on Lethal Weapon, and people are like, "Well, that's an action movie, but it's got humor in it that I can re- exactly." It relieves the tension. Yes. It breaks the tension, you know, and yet it's got a great pacing. Yeah, right. and if, go ahead. No, it just one of the things that that uh, we talked about was that sometimes humor is about the forbidden. Yeah. You know, I mean, you talk about taboo subjects, and any number of com- comedians are really good at that. That what they want to do is be skilled enough to like show you the line. And then step across it and be so good that you want to step across it with them. And so, you know, there's all kinds of terrible subjects you can't make a joke about. And yet I've heard comedians make jokes about every terrible subject under the sun, whether it's, Jesus, concentration camps or rape or whatever it might be. Gallows humor. Exactly. Because that's part of how you get through life is everybody goes through tragedy. And are you going to let it kill you? Are you going to let it crush you? Are you going to be... Oh yeah, well, and just kind of like to sell. I I laugh defensive, defensively yes. on all kinds of things just to get through it. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that about myself. I don't want to stay sad. I don't want to stay beleaguered or f- afraid. I'll find a way to make it funny because that works yeah. for me. <laughs> and, and I, I sometimes have gotten looks. I've gotten people make comments or whatever. An example, and this is a made up example. You know, if if one of my kids was in a car wreck and ended up in the hospital with like a broken arm and battered up face and stuff. I'd be like, wow, well, at least your head didn't get chopped off, you know? And I I would giggle, (laughs) you know, but there are a lot of people that would be offended by that. And that would like, give you a look like, what the hell is wrong with you? I'm like, well, you know what? They're alive. It's a very tense situation. And Hey, it could have been worse. There's, you know, that bit of humor in my eyes. That's right. There's got to be, like in combat, where it really is life or death, there has to be humor all the time with, man, I rolled the dice and, and I didn't come up snake eyes this time. I'm sorry about the people who died. And I'm sorry that we're even in this war. And yet you have to get through right. it somehow. I, I had a book coach it's- for a while, um, was reading some stuff I wrote, and it was a, a battle scene, very tense, and there's stuff going on. And I had this one character that was the comic relief. So it was the typical Han Solo comments or whatever, middle of battle, you know, blowing things up like, well, okay, I guess I'm not doing that one. Maybe I should just get something to drink, you know, or whatever it was. And it was <laughs> right. just these snarky comments off the cuff, you know, because of all the tension going on. And they like, were crossing all that stuff out. Like who would make a joke in the middle of a battle? I'm like, Oh, obviously you're not the type of coach for me. Cause you don't get it. <laughs> Well, and that's true. That's how you get a sensibility of who you're going to be compatible with. I've always thought that, that you don't have to have an exact shared sense of humor, but I just, I don't like being with people that are sticks in the mud. Right. I don't want to be with only factual people. There has to be a certain amount of play. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I'll, I have to share this with you. This might be like how I knew that Mensa was my tribe. <laughs> I was at a gathering and it was Sunday morning. So everybody's kind of like deep compressing after right. a weekend of already so much frivolity. And um, they bring out everybody's breakfast and someone had piled their grits into kind of a, a big, uh, into a wall. And they called it the grit wall of China. <laughs> and and I said, honestly, within seconds, and the, the room after the laugh from that, the lull, I got this right in there. You know, that's the only breakfast you can see from space. 
And, and it's just like everybody cracked up, maybe more than they should have, but not because it's very much a silly Mensa yeah. thing. It's that juxtaposition of small and large. It's a joke following another joke where it's like, it's, it's, there's something very cool about seeing someone quick witted, even me. Like, how did that come to me? Why did that come to me so quickly? And that it's the perfect phrasing. Yeah. And everybody who is one of those jokes of recognition where there's all kinds of jokes. If you make a joke about Renaissance England and you don't know Renaissance England, then it falls flat. Whereas so many people have heard that particular thing about the Great yes. Wall of China, the only man-made source. And it was like, everybody had that flash of recognition and of humor and of perfect timing and just I think I made my bones in Mensa. You know what right. I mean? That after that, everybody's like, we want to sit at Al's right. table because Perfect. he makes funny breakfast jokes. But I was just like so proud somehow. You know what I mean? Like I, anyway. And, and anyway. Here's, the, here's the interesting <laughs> thing. I've noticed, I sometimes will do the same type of thing. You know, we've all done it. Those, those piling, I got this, put this with it type of thing off the cuff. Except pun battles, you know, where yeah. people will keep ranking on all the kinds of bread puns or whatever. Right. Yes, You yes. find it funny and you, you got those. But what I've noticed is a lot of, and again, this comes out, always, you can't say it without sounding elitist. And I don't mean that at all. I'm just, this is the fact. Yeah. But when you're in Mensa, you're, you're in that 2% of the IQ number of the top. Right. And we get the jokes, we make the jokes, you know, sometimes it's who's just faster to talk, but you get somebody that's an average or even lower 90, let's say out of a hundred for average, it's still on the average. It's still perfectly, you know, lots of people are that. Right. They're smart people in the world. Yes, exactly. exactly. Just that they're not that weird mental level. Exactly. It is weird, but. <laughs> and so they look at you and I've had people look at me and go, what are you like 10? And I, I've thought about that. and. It's you got that difference of the IQ points. We'll just use that as a reference. But to them, it looks the same as if you are a 10 year old. They don't get it any more than they get a joke of a 10 year old, you know, because they made a fart noise, you know, and to them, that's something like honestly, that might that's probably a, that's a true reaction. You know what I mean? That if they don't get it, they automatically think. If it was worth getting, I would. Right. And so there must be something wrong with it. Right. So, you know, it, it, this is, I know I've, since we went elitist for a moment, it really is. My mind is very fast. And I, I think we, I might have, might have even said this right. before. It's kind of like living in a world of statues. Most conversations, most interactions that I have with the world, I'm kind of waiting on them. I've already thought through scenarios. I've already thought of multiple things to say and do, and I'm waiting to see how it will go. But I, I don't get surprised by regular interactions with the world and people in general that often. So I'm really talking so, to the AI Al. <laughs> I, you know, I, so just that, you know, I'm always processing in the background. And in fact, sometimes when you make a joke and people like, where'd you come up with that? And you, you, like once in a while, if it's the right crowd of people, you want to say, well, actually, I just chose that out of the 10 that I thought of. And it's like 10, come on. It's like, and then you roll out this pun and that reference and this and and like and it's some people will talk about you know you don't have a sense of humor a sense of humor has you i have that little background operator that's always thinking of a funny thing to say what's absurd about this situation what could be interesting tweaked when you hear the word red it's not just the color red it's red for communism and red for licorice and red you know the red riding hood and and those just appear kind of unbidden, but rapidly. And what would be the interesting thing? Is there a blood pun to be made here? You know, can I be sanguine about it? And, 
and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's frantic. My mind is not like, can I get a word out while my mind is running? I, some people, they talk about that they can't go to sleep at night because their mind won't turn right. off. Luckily, thank God, I don't have that weirdness. You know what I mean? I really am um, full capability when I'm on, but then I don't have a problem with yeah, turning it too. off or something like yeah. that. You know what I mean? So and that, to come back to humor, it really is fun to just experiment. You know what I mean? Like when you're with a group of people, and I often say this about gaming too, you can learn so much about a person by uh, how they game, what they laugh at, that you don't have to like say, give me your um, uh, your dissertation on who you are and how you were formed and what you are as a person, that it's just, you're always doing those little do we have a connections here? And one of the reasons that Colleen and I get along so wonderfully is that she's funny as hell. And we learned early on that we're both funny and that it wasn't funny, like competitive funny or insult funny or anything like that, that it was this joyful. Why do we love road trips? Because we'll be going down the road and every sign is an opportunity for a funny reference or a pun. Every interaction with people is not making fun of them, but it's just the absurdity of this subway is exactly the same in South Dakota as it is, you know, so do they have like, I don't know, it's, we have a gentle sense of humor about everything. And boy, that just gets you through when, hey, we were going to go to this place, but it got rained out. And yet we're not like morose about it. It's more like, well, if we go indoors over here, we know just wandering around a museum, just wandering around a, a Costco, we're going to have a good time. Right. You know what I mean? So, so. so with your class, are you having to write comedy lines or write short stories? Are you doing a stand up for the you know final credit or whatever? Uh, no, it's it's really not that. It really is a film appreciation class. So what he's doing is taking us through like one per decade, what he thinks are some of the funniest movies ever made and talking a little bit about why they're funny. Um, so the, we started off with uh, Night at the Opera, Marx Brothers, very famous. You know, lots of great funny scenes. I think we're, let's see, we're doing Some Like It Hot from the 50s. We're doing uh, um, The Graduate, which is both a drama and a comedy, but has some very funny scenes. Uh, we're doing... Uh, the Philadelphia story, which is one of those great overlayered conversation 40s comedies where I think it's like, right, Spencer Tracy and Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, just monster actors <laughs> yeah. at the height of their powers. And that the script is like, you know, inches thick instead right. of 20 pages because there's so much back and forth and wit going on with anyway. So that's what the class seems to be about is um, people putting in. Uh, that when they first saw it or why they think it's funny and it'll be uh, participatory and contributory, but it isn't if you're to create your own movie. Yeah. It, so it isn't anywhere near like one of your cool writing workshops that, or something. That's like what I was going to ask because asking, you know, what is funny? There's no answer to that. You can't give it a definitive answer except maybe 42. And I right. see the class because <laughs> I could definitely see out of any 10 movies for any decade, that some of the people will agree and like it. Some of the people will disagree and not like it. And some won't care or even understand maybe. And that shifts and changes for every 10 movies in every different decade. Cause I know exactly like I know people that, Oh my gosh, that movie's in black and white. That can't be funny. 
Well, <laughs> we, we've talked about that before. The things people think that the world started when they were born, or that black and white is kind of by definition corny. But that's the whole point of watching the Philadelphia story. Is there's as much wit packed into that movie as there are jokes in Airplane or absurdist references in Idiocracy or whatever oh, else it might be. A, it's just a difference in style. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that's interesting. I, I'd like to hear more because, for example, I mean, you're wearing the tap dance killer shirt. I've been rereading right. the Apama stuff since I got my. Uh, Kickstarter that and exactly there's bits of humor within that, but it's not laugh out loud type humor. It's lighthearted. You might say more than humorous. Yeah, you know. But the whole yeah. fact that Ilya has a rat that he talks to, and he has to stand in that weird yoga pose to get his powers, <laughs> and his suit <laughs> looks like you know it's made out of a garbage bag or something. You know, I mean, it's there's right. bits of humor that keep it lighthearted, but still. Yeah, I, I mean, what's the the second big guy he faces is the the propeller man or whatever, and he falls through the right. skyline. And it, it's it's absurd, yeah. and yet that's you know what I mean. Inventing that's one of the joys is when there's been eighty years worth of mythology and comic books, you start to get the meta comics where they're aware of what has gone before, and they're going to tweak it a little bit. They're going to make fun of this. There's no way Stiltman would really be a villain in contention. Right. You know, it's just a ridiculous De- power and things like that. Deadpool <laughs> takes all of that to the extreme. You know, he's a mercenary. Yeah, he yeah. kills people. But every bit of it is some humor. And the movie did a really good job of capturing that. So there, exactly. That's, you know, I, I that humor of recognition really is a, a, a fun one for me because it's, it's kind of a mensen thing, but I've always had it. When you're reading a book and you catch that they make a reference to some other book that it's like, okay, so it, it grounds it in reality that these guys have read the same things as I have, even while they're going through a fake adventure. And you know right. what I mean? And and I, I don't know, just even musical references, when you hear PDQ Bach and you keep picking up on all the little snippets that he stole from right. all those, he did an homage. He didn't steal right. them. He, he, well, he incorporated them as an I homage. I think the copyright ran but out, so it's okay. Right, exactly. And, uh, the Beethoven works might be in the public domain right. and stuff like that. But there's some, there's like a little reward for, I'm uh, knowledgeable enough, versed enough in this field that I get many, kind of like listen to Dennis Miller as a stand-up. He has all kinds of obscure references, and it's like, I made the team! I got almost every one of his jokes! You know what <laughs> Dennis I mean? Dennis Miller drinking so, game. <laughs> yeah, and there's other comics that are really good like that where it doesn't even have to be um, like a body of knowledge specific, but that they don't they don't hold back. They respect the intelligence of their audience so that they'll make an obscure reference. And then when they hear the one or two or three laughters out of a crowd of 50 people, they're like, thanks for getting that yeah, one. That right, one for me. Right. You know what I mean? I love that where they, I just love that. I, I love that there's a connection made with a shared experience or a, not only did he just say, hey, do you know who Darth Vader is? But he made a joke that referenced Darth Vader so that if you got there as quick as he did, was, then yeah. you had that little laugh and then he moved on. He didn't even belabor right. it. I, that's something very I, cool. I, I've often mentioned Stuart McLean <laughs> and okay. um, he did these uh, Dave and Morley stories, made up stories about a family and they're all funny. It's very much in the style of uh, Bill Cosby, which I know, you know okay. we don't need to go into that discussion, but before right. we but, but growing up family type yes, stuff, yeah, you know, okay. the story comedy, not so much the hit one liners. And there are multiple times where you'd listen to it because he would do these live in front of people and mm-hmm. you get to know the stories, you get to know the family. So you get to know 
expect, oh, I see where this is going. And you would hear people yeah. in the audience start to laugh and he would be on stage and go, wait, don't get there before me. Or yeah, you know what happens next. <laughs> exactly. don't you? you know, just always at that thing. Uh, so that was always, I always enjoyed that. With him. Yeah, the familiarity. In fact, there's a guy, you, you know, Mike Berbiglia. Yeah. Have you heard yeah, any yeah. of his work? Another guy that does great story based humor. It's not one liners. And he actually makes fun of that, that, you know, he's talking about um, a, an absurd situation that he found himself in and people start to crack up because they think they know where he's going. And he, and he kind of goes, I know I'm in the future too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And he makes fun of the fact that he did craft it so that you would, some would, get there with him and already start to say, Oh God, this is going to end bad. Right. You know right. what I mean? And, and that anticipation <laughs> is also part of the humor. It's the same humor yes. and horror. You need some of that anticipation to you right. know, enhance it. Exactly. And in fact, one of the reasons that I really love, um, Emo Phillips, yes. Stephen Wright. The, the, uh, there's a couple of people that are, Mitch Hedberg, we've lost him, but they were great at what's called, uh, here's a nice word, a paraprosdokian. You know, it's a garden path joke where it, it sets up an expectation and then whoop, takes a left yep. turn and it surprises you. And the craft of being able to do in 20 words, set up an expectation so much that your mind is leaning forward and then he surprises you and does that consistently with all their, with much of their humor. I just love the craft of that. There's something so and, and Emo Phillips so, is definitely one of those that most Mentons can agree fits right in there. One of my heroes, yeah. one of my favorites, you know what I mean? And and that another when Colleen and I were getting to know each other, we both when we when we would reference various different things and of course what do I do to take her out on dates? Let's go see Emo Phillips. Let's go to the Cirque Batard. I don't want to take her to conventional. I kind of want to say if you get to know me, let's do some me things and I'll find out if you like them and then I'll know kind of if we're going to right. be compatible and if you'll be compatible, if you, if you think that I'm a weirdo or whether I'm okay. And so we still have lines, you know, that we recite from emo because they're so perfect. You know, it's one of my favorite jokes is, um, let's see, uh, I took a girl out on a date and she wouldn't give me a second date because I didn't open the door for her. I just swam to the surface. <laughs> Yes. And that perfect, it didn't just take a left turn. It went into like horrific, <laughs> oh my God, car underwater. Right. He's going to let her die. And But he just says it, it wasn't like in his sing-song voice man. that it's so innocent. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Does it that and, flat, and he, you know, monotone. I, I just referenced him the other day. Colin went and got a, a tattoo, his first tattoo. He got Batman on it. Oh arm. boy. Okay. Uh, so yeah. it's a really nice Batman symbol. Um, but I was like, yeah, you know, I was thinking of getting a, a tattoo. What I'd really like to get is a tattoo of myself over my whole body. And all the kids <laughs> kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, Nemo has a great line of, you know, they used to call him Mr. Baseball, you know, because of the stitches. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like that you're, you know, it's like, oh, you really, I love people that can take you to a dark place, but it's still so terribly funny. Right. You know what I mean? It's just a like monotone, you know, the, his delivery. Yes. That's, that's what helps set it off because you yeah. get a lot of comics that laugh at themselves and that's, and that's fine. That's part of who they are. And that's okay. He made it that monotone and the dry delivery, you know, very right. much. So, so that you'd be listening and really getting, trying to right. get what he's going on about. Exactly. You want, you want to, There's more jokes oh as you say you want to talk Please about jarring 
go find an interview with him where he's not in character. And he's like just smiling and normal and laughing. And you're like, wait, who the hell is that? <laughs> Honestly, you know, Colleen and I, we're groupies enough that often, especially uh, hilarities, you know, the uh, place within Pickwick and Frolic here in Cleveland is really great about, they have little stations where after the show, you can often go talk to your favorite comics and they'll be selling CDs or t-shirts or whatever else. It might be just a chance to shake their hand and say, thank you so much. And, Indeed, the first time that we did that, where you find out that emo isn't always emo, <laughs> it really is a persona that he puts on. And same with others, like Bobcat Goldthwait yeah. is not always like sputtering and and twitchy, that he's kind of a normal person right. without him. And there's any number of other guys. And it, it it is a little bit jarring, but it's also like, honestly, thank God, because that would be a really tough life to go yeah. through where everybody around you is like squirming with discomfort because you make them that right. way. Because you know what right. I mean? <laughs> so, okay, let, let, uh, let's let uh, talk about uh, what we're reading. Uh, you mentioned yes. um, you're reading uh, Wildstorm. You know, what's up with that this week? So I really like Warren Ellis. He's he's done really good work in comic books in multiple fields, but especially his uh, uh, dissection, if you will, of superhero tropes is really good. And Wildstorm is he he created things long ago. I think thirty years ago when. Um, he created the first, you know, there's two ancient races that had uh, kind of settled on Earth or at least infiltrated Earth, and they're having a war using us as a battleground. But then they also have like alien-human hybrids that we, that's some, some part of how people got superpowers or turned super evil. And there's um, two forces on Earth where one kind of runs the globe and one is a big space station up in the sky, and they have a, a detente, you know, as to who's really in charge and stuff. Well, he, he did the authority and um planetary no i guess it was it was him where he did like took superheroes mystery archaeologists to the end they're just some of the most readable best comics ever wildstorm is his redoing it he takes the situation that he had created but he kind of throws out what has already happened canon he's retelling some of the stories and with lots of different twists as to characters are not exactly the same as who they were that when they meet each other what teams they form how they interact with the various different secret governments and aliens and all that kind of stuff and so it's a real high wire act of like maybe a little bit we're talking about. There's already all these expectations of, well, I read all those. I kind of know what's going to happen. No, he's really good at giving you enough familiarity, but enough different that it's a whole new work. And, and I love that. I love that he's aware enough of his own work and maybe like who he has matured into in the last 20 and 30 years. You know, that was his 25 year old self writing that. And now it's his 55 and he's a little more jaded. He's a little bit more worldly. He, he, he just wants to have a different take on and who better instead of somebody else yeah. running with those characters, why not rip yourself off? That's such a disrespectful way to put it. It is a wonderful reworking of his own stuff. And I find it fascinating that he, he doesn't, in thinking about what he would do, that his mind doesn't necessarily go down exactly the same paths, because that's what my mind thought the first time, that he really has this interesting clinical way of stepping outside of that yeah. and being, that was good, but this could be better. And maybe I'll throw in a little randomness here. And, and I just Well, it sounds it. cool. I always um, like that, seeing how things yeah. are different. And saying, uh, rip himself off, you know, that's the absurd comedy part of being able to, of what you were trying to say. So it just comes I guess, out. exactly. <laughs> It, and it's it, the fact that, uh, I don't know, there's, I always love metafiction, yeah. you know, where they talk about that the world of fiction is a 
that uh, its own world, if you will. And yet these people inhabit, especially when you start involving, and we had mentioned this, you know, let's talk time travel. When you start to have issues of time travel where you really do know what's going to happen in the future or what did happen in the past, but you're trying to alter it, but then how far can you go or how far do you want to go? And and you, you talked about how you just wrote an interesting short story. Yeah. Uh, uh, so would you like to share a little bit oh, of that? Because I thought it was a good idea. Yeah, sure. It, it was um, basically the story is a guy programmer that's working on an AI and he has gotten it. The computer talks, they react and all that. Well, they're having the computer analyze movies like you are with your class and the computer gloms onto the idea of time travel through various movies and TV shows. And then it investigates uh, books on quantum physics and time travel and real science type information. And then basically runs millions of years worth of simulations until it figures out in the, what would be in our future, you know, through the simulation, it figures out how to do time travel. So then it applies that new knowledge in modern day and it goes back in (laughs) time and basically gets rid of this guy's family and his wife and his dog and, uh, the programmers. Okay. Yes. The AI (laughs) of all of that. So the programmer can spend more time and be more devoted to programming the AI. Oh my, the cuckoo pushing other birds out of yes. the nest, if you will. That So that's, see, what an interesting concept that, you know, once you became self-aware, uh, so I love a series called The Destroyer. Yes. It's Remo Williams, a great martial artist. One of the best books of his I ever read was a, a, a scientist creates Mr. Gordon's. And she talks about, it's an artificial intelligence. I couldn't give it creativity. I couldn't figure that out. So I gave it survival. And that will look enough like creativity that it simulates what is in nature. You know, things don't create art, if you will, in nature. But in necessity, you know, is the mother of invention. They will do whatever it takes to inhabit their environment, use its materials, change themselves. And so that line has stayed with me forever. I couldn't give it creativity, so I gave it survival. And that's a very cool take on that. You know, this AI wants to get to itself quicker. It wants to be... The, right, the, the the everything to this guy and the dispassion of he doesn't need those other things, exactly. even though they are indeed his wife and children. Yeah. you know, like this dog, exactly. Yeah. So it was a fun piece to write. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do fun. with it yet, but uh, we'll see. So I've been reading. <laughs> um, Amazon Prime <laughs> offers uh, okay. uh, bunches of books uh, that you can read for free, not the Kindle Unlimited, but just Prime stuff that you can borrow and read. Okay. And they've been in attracting big name authors to come and write stuff for just them. You know, we want people to be on prime. You can only get this here. So they actually signed Dean Arcoots last year uh, to an, uh, a contract and he's written a series okay. called nameless and it's six books. It's almost serial fiction, but each one's an independent story. Um, okay. And it's about this guy who can't remember anything about himself, his past. And he's essentially an assassin for hire uh, with not for hire, but he's an assassin that works for this company. And each book is a learning about an injustice in the world, almost like the crow, but he goes and basically kills them in a very just fashion. Uh, okay. And it's, it, they're okay. He has the skills yeah. kind of like the born identity where if you yes. don't know who you are, but you still have the skills, yes. you're still, 
dangerous. Very okay. much so. And it's not bad. Um, th- though the stories are a little short, so you don't get a whole lot that could have been added in, I guess you could say, what you expect from Koontz. Okay. But the yeah. overall arc of learning about him is peppered throughout little bits here and there. So I'm hoping there's a very big climax that explains more about who he is. And it doesn't just end with him dying or something like that. So we'll see. Yeah. Actually, this is so funny because, you know, sometimes we talk beforehand about what we're going to be talking about, but what am I reading right now? Dean Koontz. Oh, really? I really have liked his Odd Thomas books, and I really liked his Jane Hawk books. You know, it's kind of a spy thriller. And I just got the Frankenstein series. Oh, it's on He did a modern take on Frankenstein of Frankenstein's monster having survived for 200 years, and also Victor Frankenstein having survived, and that they're still at conflict. You know, one wants to create a new race of men. You know, he wants to be God. Victor Frankenstein uh, is mad and Frankenstein's monster is actually from having been inhuman has become the more human of the two, if you will. And, and so what's interesting is Kuntz changes his writing style, depending on what he's writing about. So these are actually very terse and kind of pulp fictiony, very move the plot forward, show it from multiple characters, viewpoints, the paragraphs, I'm sorry, the um, chapters are like, three, four, five pages long. And so there's a hundred chapters to the book, but, and it's just vignette, vignette, vignette. And like that little mosaic of what's going on and how they're going to bump into each other. And will there be conflict? They just compel you forward. I devoured it in like a day and a half. You know what I mean? And there's, there's five of them. And so that's one of those things I love is I, I, because I had loved his work in the past, I, with confidence, bought all five as a set. And then sometimes you do that and it's like, wow, that first one was kind of a stinker. And I'm saddled with these (laughs) bookstops, doorstops. Instead, no, I'm really like, I, I didn't read the next one right away because I kind of like to move amongst various different series. So I think I mentioned I just finished the next book in the Lycanius trilogy. I'm, I read nonfiction like the, the Alan Zweibel book. And so I'm just, but I'm, I'm looking forward to when I finish this one, the next one I'm going to return to is the Frankenstein series because there, there's just the right amount of, uh, uh, CSI investigation plus a little bit of pseudoscience plus a little bit of good versus evil. And they're really good. They're Uh, really good. So I've got the first two or three (laughs) sitting on my bookshelf. Okay. So So before we go, what have you been listening to? Uh, let's see. Uh, I just I I got a bunch of comedy CDs recently because I had pangs over people that we had right. lost, and so I I think I mentioned I got John Pinette, I got um, um, Richard Jenny, some of them I already had all of theirs that I um, wanted that I that I wanted to have. I got Robert Schimmel, and and we we kind of lost all of them in the last twenty years, and I don't want to let them go yet. You know what I mean? If all I can have is their little time capsules of, of their perfect CDs and all that humor, and so uh, when we Colleen and I drove down to Johnson Woods, we threw a John Pinnett CD in the car, nice. and you know, it, as much as we can talk, it's really nice to have shared laughter and stuff like that. Um, having said that, I also got an Almond Brothers mm. box set that I love that. Is it dreams? And, and one of those things, uh, so let's see, I'm trying to think it's, um, well, actually it's one of the, one of them was maybe it is dreams. It's, it was actually their box set where they have a little libretto that it talks about their history. And then I also got, and it's all their, um, B sides, yes. live cuts. It's all their rarities. So it's great. That's a good, and that's like the, same the perfect one. version yeah. of Melissa, yes. the perfect yes. version of whip and post. You know what I mean? They went to all their, um, live, uh, three night stands at, you know, the, the, why is the name escaping me? It doesn't matter. They really 
somebody did a lot of good listening mm-hmm. and said, this has the best solo, the best jam, the best Greg Allman aching vocal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They're just really, really good. And so as I, sometimes I have a box set and I'm like, I'll sprinkle a CD amongst various other things. And I just listen to them one after the other. Tom Petty does that to me. That when I start listening to Tom Petty, I want to hear Everybody. a whole bunch yeah. of Tom Petty. And so what a delight, you know what I mean? To be like, I admire the musicianship of them and they're not prog rock at all. They're not like, how many notes can I fit it's in here? But their ability to like establish a jam and, and move it forward and have the, they have a lot of call response where there's multiple drummers, multiple right. great guitarists and they, they play so well together. They're like psychic in terms of how they're, they change on a dime to the next portion of a song. It's just the coolest thing. I love them. Yeah, I, love them. <laughs> I would love seeing them live again. You know, they're kind of, they're not what the Almond Brothers once were. They've had some new guys come into the band. And so if you don't have, the, uh, who think who's gone, Dickie Betts is gone, Dwayne Almond is gone, but they, the people they've, I think brought in. And in fact, even I think people that are in government mule, who I also really like at one point, they played with the Almond Brothers. There's a couple expatriates from the Almond Brothers. And so I kind of love that kind of thing of when you read the liner notes of an album and you go, well, they used to be in this band that I loved. I wonder what they're doing now. And they're still great. Right. So it's cool to have that little lineage. Yeah. You know what I That's mean? That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I love Allman Brothers. Yeah. Uh, such bluesy. Yeah. It's funny you say that because just yesterday I ran a cl- across a clip uh, of the movie Crossroads from the 80s with Ralph Macchio. Steve Vai on guitar yes. as Jack Butler. Oh my yeah. God. He's so great. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 man, if I, I don't know if I've actually ever seen the whole movie, but I, I caught the clip oh. that had them at the crossroads talking and, and it, I was laughing my ass off because Machio's in the background playing slide guitar on a electric and it's not plugged in. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> there might be a few continuity yeah, errors whatever. or whatever. But... <laughs> so that's funny you uh, bring it up, Almond Brothers, because yeah, I I that's... quite often will get in a. I saw them in concert way long ago with some friends. Uh, it wasn't yeah. all of them. It was in the eighties, but yeah, I mean bluesy, jeez. Exactly. I've seen, and especially it, it was one of the things I didn't want the show to end. Yeah. They had already played like two and a half hours yeah. and it's like, man, I got more in me. If you got more in you, I'll stick around as that, long as you're I playing. I think they're one of the so. groups that would probably play half the night if local laws and whatever would let them. <laughs> exactly. That's this, uh, a closing anecdote. You know, I'm, I'm growing up and I, you start to like, look at what your parents have in their it, house. You look it. at their books and stuff. I, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm growing up physically, but maybe not, you know, I still have childlike wonder. And my dad, like my dad's a white Lithuanian guy. You know, he's not even like, he wasn't born in the United States, but he had all kinds of blues albums. He had like BB King live at Cook County jail. He had, uh, um, and I, he had Robert Johnson and those were like, you had to find yeah. those. Those weren't really like, he was not revered back in the sixties. Like he became to be known where everybody referenced him. So they put together a box set of, and he's, you know, the guy that crossroads is based on. That's why this kind of links in. And I just, I love the fact that, you know what I mean? I, my dad was deeper than I thought instead of him just being, he's the Easter egg hunt guy. <laughs> and he, you know, he's my dad and works for a living and stuff to find out that he had this penchant for the blues was just the coolest thing somehow you know and even my dad has soul the crazy my dad thing has deep- the crazy yeah. thing is going back to johnson and Helen wolf and muddy waters or any of those old guys even some lesser yes. known ones you go listen to their stuff and you're like oh my god that's 
Allman Brothers or that's Led Zeppelin or you're like right you can hear oh, yeah. where so much stuff came from yeah. these are the formative forces yeah exactly it's crazy how much there <laughs> really is and how many of the Led Zeppelin songs are actually covers I mean, it's it's like geez, I mean, that, exactly you know, I, growing up in Chicago, we had a wonderful blues scene. I used to go to folk clubs and blues clubs where I was like, you know, I kind of don't belong here, but I do. I love this music. And so you go to like Kingston Mines and you, we, we already back then they had um, Buddy Guy playing often in Chicago and Muddy Waters and various other people, whenever they came to town, they would do a set. So I, I, if I ever told you I, this, okay. I saw Muddy Waters and the Rolling Stones playing at a place called the Checkerboard Lounge, where we drove up from Champaign-Urbana. It was when I was in college to see them play at this little hole-in-the-wall place, and they were all at the altar. The Stones were like, you are the one that we have emulated. Right. We wanted to be anywhere near like you. You know, these kind of pale British guys, <laughs> but like Muddy Waters, man. And they they, they, they did Mojo. I uh, got my Mojo working. They did Little Red Rooster. It, it was just the coolest thing to see them smiling ear to ear over we get to be on the stage with our this giant yeah, this legend cool. it was the coolest that's thing cool. <laughs> all right anyway. well on that note okay haha very good <laughs> so again happy easter and uh we'll we'll see what's happening as we move into spring and see you in yep, a week see you in a week i'll have okay. a good one take care bye-bye you have been listening to the relentless geekery podcast Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week.